What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show, presented by The Big Lead. We are almost halfway through the Super Bowl ramp-up. These two weeks, they used to take a long time because we got our news parceled out in like Super Bowl hits from Jerome Holtzman outside the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. But now we have an endless stream of up-to-the-minute news, observations, storylines, drama, and then we also have the added element of the Super Bowl is about story Z in the list of NFL topics these days. My guest making his triumphant return is Matt Lombardo of the Matt Lombardo Show. You can hear him also on the Stacking the Box Network. And Matt, I have to start here with you. You found yourself in the news like Kent Brockman. You became the story when you went to cover the introductory press conference for new New York Giants coach Brian Dayball and arrived four minutes late. You were immediately called out onto the carpet and put to task by the first-time head coach. What was that experience like? Well, I made it here on time today, right? So I, I was actually early. So if, if there was a lesson to be learned, you know, in, in all seriousness, Kyle, it was one of those mornings where I know you have kids. I have a three-year-old daughter. And, you know, every you walk in her room. I'm all ready to go. And she's like, well, daddy, can I bring this toy to Nana's house? Can I bring that toy to Nana's house? And you're loading up the bin, loading up the car. I have a 90-minute commute to East Rutherford as it is. So you factor in wrangling the kid, dropping off the daughter at, at, at my mom's house, getting back on the road. I was destined for failure. When I saw that the, the time was 10 a.m., I knew I was in trouble. And I think that I kind of set myself up because rather than trying to scooch in and sit next to a colleague in one of the seats, I thought I did the polite thing, standing back in the corner, trying not to disrupt anybody. But no, Brian Dable had to call me out on it. But it's all in good fun. And uh, the elephant, the elephant never forgets. So this, this moment might be brought up again sometime in the near future. Well, yeah, and I think that's an important thing to point out is he was having fun with it. I mean, as with anything that goes viral online or slightly viral, people jump to the extremes and say, oh, he's way out of line. I mean, I thought it was just kind of a a funny thing. You could tell he wasn't taking it too seriously, but I will say it kind of reminded me of a moment being here in Michigan is when Matt Patricia had his, one of his press conferences early on in his tenure. And he basically kind of gave a prolonged lecture to the assorted media. And, and that really 
inspired me to write something that he didn't really understand what it was like to be part of this Lions organization. And kind of that bared out, like it's kind of weird how that moment in the press conference kind of showed his arrogance that he would be able to turn things around. I don't think we're taking anything away from Dayball outside the fact that you're going to leave the house about five minutes earlier next time. Yeah, maybe about 15, given the traffic situation. But no, I, I agree with you. And, and the body language, I think, is what kind of gave it to me. He did kind of grin when he said it. And he called me completely flat-footed because I could have had some snarky reply like, oh, yeah, I was just on the radio talking up your hire. You know, I could have thrown something like that back at him. But he called me completely flat-footed and off guard. And I wasn't the only guy that he kind of punked on. There were a couple of uh, my bald bearded colleagues who were in attendance similar to Brian Dable bald with the beard and he made sure to point that out and you know kind of poked a jab at one of the reporters with a strong Brooklyn accent so I wasn't the only one in the line of fire I was just the one who decided that it would be a fun idea to retweet the video when it came across my timeline just to see the reaction but I'm with you I think that he was busting my stones and in all seriousness I think that this is an opportunity for me as his career goes along to maybe build a relationship because if he shows up five or 10 minutes for a press conference, which is inevitable, it happens to head coaches all the time. I can always be like, Hey man, I thought no excuses, you know? So one of those moments might be, might be in the cards down the line. I just realized in the moment who Brian Dable reminds me of now when you were talking and it's a guess who character. I can't remember what his name is, but he looks exactly like one. It sounds like there are people in the room who also share that affliction. Serious story coming out two days ago, the Brian Flores class action lawsuit. There's a lot of tentacles to this. There's a lot of things to discuss. I think I just opened up broadly in kind of getting your 30,000 foot view of, of what this means for Flores and what that means for the league. It's an in my mind, this is going to be something that will be a prolonged story and, and won't be wrapping up anytime soon. Yeah, I think regardless of how this winds up playing out, Kyle, it kind of is a reckoning for the NFL and the fact that you have a league where 70% of the players are black. You only have one African-American head coach now after David Culley and Brian Flores were fired. That's Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh. You only have four black offensive coordinators, 11 black defensive coordinators this has been a prolonged issue for the NFL that they need to come to grips with and figure out a way to get more African-Americans hired as head coaches. I mean, you, you talk about this hiring cycle in particular. Leslie Frazier was the defensive coordinator of the number one ranked defense in the NFL. You have Flores who had back-to-back -back winning seasons. Patrick Graham is really highly regarded around the NFL. Then you have the two coordinators in Tampa a year removed for a Super Bowl and Byron Lethwich and, of course, Todd Bowles on defense. And none of these guys have been hired. To me, that's a problem. And I don't know quite how you fix it, whether it's trying to incentivize teams to hire, you know, black and brown general managers, whether it's incentivizing hiring minorities by awarding compensatory draft picks. But something needs to be done here. And I think that Flora is bringing this issue to the forefront in a legal sense. It might actually force the NFL to enact some sort of tangible change. I know they beefed up the Rooney rule, but we're seeing firsthand this offseason. That just wasn't nearly enough. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it was always going to take something drastic to move the ball forward in this arena because this is the same conversation we've been having every offseason. It's an annual tradition 
hey, this is a problem. It never gets fixed. And then the evidence since those conversations is, is just added up. I mean, here in Detroit, the Jim Caldwell thing has rubbed people the wrong way for a long time. It's just this body of evidence. And then you read the particular allegations that Flores puts out there, and it's like he was hired to lose. Yeah, and, and that's where the NFL is going to have a real problem, is I think that there will eventually be a criminal, federal, or congressional investigation into the allegations of Stephen Ross paying, allegedly, Brian Flores to lose games. Then you're talking about the integrity of the game. Then you start to bring in antitrust issues in an era where the NFL has wrapped its arms around sports betting in this country. So to me, the, the, the big picture, we need to fix the fact that there aren't more minority general managers and head coaches. That's priority one. But for the NFL, they're going to need to figure out how to answer for the allegations of tanking because you also had in Cleveland very similar allegations being made there as well. And it just seems like, Kyle, this could be a monumental sea change for the entire NFL on two major fronts. Well, I agree. And look, I mean, it's important to say at the beginning that a, a lawsuit is not hard and fast proof. It is not right. a conviction. It is not proof that all this happened. When I read what the lawyers put together for Flores, I didn't really see a smoking gun because knowing something that exists is one thing. And I think that everybody who wants to study this issue critically comes to the same conclusion. But proving it in court is a much higher bar as it should be. Maybe there is more coming. It's very early. I mean, we're in the very first quarter when it comes to how this thing is going to play out. But it's almost as if, if you look at the allegation, the idea that football teams are actually throwing games and fixing results, like that puts it on par with a scandal of the Black Sox, of Pete Rose, and then you throw in the racial element with what Flores is alleging, and that has hues of like the Colin Kaepernick. So it's like three giant scandals all rolled into one, there's so much coming at people that they're not able to process it. And I think the more pertinent problem for the NFL to solve, like you said, in an era where the only idea is more gambling, like they have to fix the integrity of the game. That's job one. The Flores, the failures of the Rooney rule, the inequitable treatment. Well, that's a real problem on a human level, also on a PR level. I'm not sure it's going to rise to the legal level that requires like a 911 emergency response because they're gonna fight really hard on that element to it. I wonder in a way if we're kind of like underappreciating the significance of what was filed because it is so shocking and so damning. And we haven't even mentioned the alleged meeting between Brian Flores and Tom Brady on a yacht in Miami that Flores wanted no part of because he didn't want to get involved in a tampering situation during the offseason. And, and I think you're absolutely right when it comes to the idea of throwing games, because it's one thing if it's the NBA and you're Sam Hinkie in the Philadelphia 76ers and you're going to construct during the offseason a roster that's built to lose and you're not going to spend any money and you're going to bring in street free agents and fringe NBA players because you want to get a better draft pick. But if you're in the NFL and you're an owner actively, you know, telling and nudging your head coach to lose games, boy, that, that is, that, that cuts right to the integrity of the sport itself. 
And to me, that's going to be the biggest issue that comes from this, from the NFL's perspective and how they wind up addressing what did or didn't happen during that year in Miami. It's come out in the last few days that there's supposedly supporting evidence. Like it seems like there's going to be a willingness for people who were at the Dolphins at the time to back up Flores's narrative of events. And if that happens, if there's paper, like if this is all recognized and memorialized, how do you spin that, right? That's the smoking gun right there. Well, Ross would have to sell the team, right? Because if, if, if there's a paper trail, if there are $100,000 checks for a loss, if there are things like that, that are floating out there that are going to come up during the discovery phase of this lawsuit, then the Miami Dolphins have a real problem on their hands. And it's not unlike the New York Giants in this situation. If it comes out that Bill Belichick was texting a Chris Mara or a Tim McDonald or God forbid a John Mara or a Steve Tisch, and it comes out that the Giants had made up their mind that they were hiring Brian Dable before they interviewed Brian Flores and before they interviewed Leslie Frazier for a second time, I don't know how John Mara or Steve Tisch would remain the owners of the New York Giants if this all plays out in the way that we just outlined. Now, again, that's just us, you know, conjecture, throwing out our, our own speculation based on reading of the tea leaves. I don't have any reporting to suggest that that's the case, but I think that if there's some sort of paper trail or if someone in ownership is involved in the Giants aspect of this, these franchises are going to face real tangible issues in terms of their owners being able to remain in the NFL. Yeah. And I would just say, you know, like the people, this, the people who are specifically mentioned, I know it's against all 32 teams, but you can bet that Goodell is going to be incentivized to make an example of them, even if he knows damn well that this is something that's endemic around the league. Let's switch to something more positive, and that's the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 56. I love the Super Bowl because I love to check out the latest Roman numeral. I don't use them near enough in my life. I I like to quiz myself. I'm about 90% in getting it without looking up. I think, uh, what is this one, an L, V, and an I? Yeah, dude, I'm so terrible with it. Like, I'll have to Google the Super Bowl number to find out what the Roman numeral is. Like, even, you know, I've covered four Super Bowls in my life. I don't know if we're using video or not, but I'll once in a while look back at the pennants from the, because I've made a tradition of, you know, buying a pennant from each Super Bowl. I'll look back, oh, Chiefs Niners, that was LIV. Or, you know, Eagles Patriots, that was LII. Like, I have to look because I can't memorialize and memorize those Roman numerals in my head. It sounds like you do a much better job of that than I do. Yes, yes. Uh, once they ruled the world, now they exist uh, once a year. Uh, and lazy people just write out the Cyrillic or whatever system we're on. Um, but why I'm so excited for this Super Bowl, and I think that why everybody is looking forward to it um, a little bit more than usual, is the absence of a team to root against. Now, I will say this just purely from a fan perspective. Usually when I sit down to watch the Super Bowl over the last 15 years, there's been a clearly identifiable team that I'm not going to pull for. And that's part and parcel. There's going to be people on the other side who really like that team. The Patriots being in every other one since the turn of the decade really helps with that because there's no middle ground on Tom Brady, not after the first one. The Rams won. He kind of had everybody. That tide started to turn when the dynasty was built. Then you have Ben Roethlisberger and the Steelers. And then you have Peyton Manning being a ubiquitous presence. Really, I could tick through these and go back and say that 
two years ago, Tampa Bay, Kansas City was kind of like both new blood. We had Mahomes looking to plant his flag in the champion's ground. I think that that was kind of a fun one with no in-between. 2016, you had Peyton Manning, polarizing figure, Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning. Maybe the Harbaugh Bowl in 2013, that was kind of like a split where, hey, either one of these guys will kind of be a fun champion. And maybe if you go back to that, it's uh, Colts Bears in 2007. But I think what this one has going for it is the Bengals have Joe Burrow, obviously super fun. The comparisons to Joe Montana, and we can get into that. I know that you addressed that and you wrote about that and it was really interesting, are plain and obvious. And then on the other hand, you have Matthew Stafford, who's looking to complete kind of this hired gun phase of his career that people like me know has been in there, but has been unable to flourish and grow under the bright lights. It does kind of feel like this is one where people are maybe going to have a rooting interest, but I think that they're just going to be happy to see a good game drama in the last two minutes. And then whomever prevails prevails and they walk away happy and enjoy it on Monday morning. Yeah. I'll even go a step further with this one, Kyle. You know, I went back and looked a couple of weeks ago since the turn of the century, there have only been seven Super Bowls that didn't involve a uh, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, or Russell Wilson. And that's over the last 21 years. And you throw in Patrick Mahomes, obviously now that narrows it down even further. And I think that we're kind of graduating from an era of one or two dominant quarterbacks like a Brady, like a Rodgers, like a Peyton Manning before him. And you look at the quarterback play, especially on the AFC side of the bracket where you have Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert. You know, these are guys that are going to be in the mix every single year. And I think there's going to be even more parity in terms of the teams that go to the Super Bowl. So in a lot of ways, this Super Bowl kind of feels like a clean break from the old guard of Rodgers and Brady and Manning and all of those guys. And it might be the beginning of a new run of different teams making it to this point in the year every year. So I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to see Joe Burrow on this stage because he's now the only player to go to a Super Bowl, win the Heisman Trophy, and win a national championship. I think that if he wins the Super Bowl, he'd be the only one to accomplish that period, maybe alongside Joe Montana, I think is the stat. But you just look at what Burrow has going for him. You look at just from boiling it down to one singular, what the Rams and Les Snead did this year going back to trading for, for Matthew Stafford, going and getting Odell Beckham Jr., going and getting Avon Miller, dropping them into a great situation with all kinds of talent already in place. It's kind of like the upstart, young, potential next dynasty, so to speak, with the Cincinnati Bengals and the team that went all in this year. So to me, it's going to be a really fascinating matchup. It's going to be great quarterback play again. And what great quarterback play we've had all through this postseason. You know, I'm kind of with you. I'm really excited about this particular game, and this particular matchup in a way that I haven't been about a Super Bowl in quite some time. These playoffs have kind of been like the NCAA basketball tournament argument where everybody likes to see upsets early on, but then they kind of want the best teams to rise to the occasion and be there in the final four. What the NFL has going for it is whichever team makes it to the Super Bowl, we're going to have a ready-made storyline for them. We're going to have easily identifiable players. We're going to have a large fan base and we're going to have two weeks to find what makes it the most interesting. So it's kind of like this perfect system where it doesn't really matter what happens. I know that there's been a lot of talk like, oh, look at all the great 
quarterbacks that were dispatched early on in the playoffs and oh, the NFL must be worried about that. It's a problem that solves itself because there's an endless supply and stream of players and widening that net and giving them this national spotlight for two weeks, it's going to serve great dividends for the long term. No doubt about it. And I think that, you know, this year in particular, where you have teams that haven't been to this stage before, haven't been in what, 36 years or whatever it's been, you look at the Los Angeles Rams, this group of Rams hasn't been there other than Sean McVay about three years ago. I mean, it's a brand new quarterback, brand new weapons, dominant defense. So the storylines are all kind of fresh and all kind of new. And I think that 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 adds a level of excitement and interest for sure. So with that in mind, I just want to lean into the positivity here and we're going to go back and forth and I'm going to talk about the Rams. You're going to talk about the Bengals and we're each going to give you five reasons why we're excited to see what happens in 10 days in Los Angeles. And I'll start and it's no secret what my number one is and it's Matt Stafford. I've written extensively on the topic. I've been in his camp as strongly as anybody not named Dan Orlovsky I'm taking my victory laps every single time I can get them because I just knew, Matt, I knew that he had this in him. I watched him be one of the toughest athletes I've ever seen play week in and week out or day to day in my Lions fandom. And he has risen to the occasion and he's done it in the way that he's most famous for, which is falling behind, sometimes through a fault of his own, sometimes not, but coming up with the big play on the last drive of the game where it really matters having ice in his veins he is on my short list for people you want under center that's going to give you like his floor is very high and then he has these days where his ceiling are as is as high as maybe everybody except Mahomes and Allen yes he doesn't do it with his leg but in those pressurized passing situations in the last two minutes of the half he's never going to give up he's never going to be deterred He's comported himself like in the right way through his career. Everybody who's played with him really likes him. He negotiated his exit from Detroit, which could have gotten very messy. He did that in a way where an overwhelming majority of that fan base is rooting for him. Trust me, it's like we're in the Super Bowl. It's kind of weird, a little pathetic. We got Justin Verlander Astros syndrome around here. But I just am so thrilled for him personally because he's been everything that you want an athlete to be everything that people say they want athletes to be. And he's finally getting his one shot at it. And I really think he's going to do it. And it's going to be really fun to revisit what his career looks like. Should he pull it off? I'll see your Matthew Stafford and I'll raise you a Joe Burrow because I look at Joe Burrow and watching him week in and week out this season, and especially in the postseason and what he was able to do going on the road against the number one seed in Tennessee, getting sacked nine times, still getting it done in the moment, driving the Bengals down the field to kick the game-winning field goal, going on the road into the most hostile environment in professional sports at Arrowhead Stadium, winning that game against Patrick Mahomes, his second win this year against Mahomes, Kyle, I watched Joe Burrow, and I feel like I'm getting back in on the ground floor of Tom Brady's career. And I wrote about this in my weekly column on fansided.com this week. You can go and check it out. But, you know, talking to people who train quarterbacks, talking to executives around the league, there's just something about the way Burrow plays. And Quincy Avery, who trains some of the league's premier quarterbacks, I think he put it best. 
that Joe Burrow isn't going to overwhelm you with his arm strength. If you watched him work out on a Wednesday, you're probably going to think that this is the backup quarterback for a division division one school, that he doesn't have all of the gifts. But when he steps on the field on game day, there might not be a more cerebral quarterback in the league today than Joe Burrow in a way, which is exactly what made Tom Brady special. And the same things they were saying about Tom Brady in the year 2000, people are starting to say about Joe Burrow. He makes every throw on time. He makes every throw accurately. He doesn't make mistakes. And he's in this terrific situation with a quarterback whisperer as a head coach in Zach Taylor, with a a wide receiver in Jamar Chase, who might already be a top two or three receiver in the NFL as a rookie who he's played with since his time at LSU. So you know that as Chase gets better in the NFL, Burrow is going to rise with that boat in the same way. And I just look at the kid transfers from Ohio State to LSU, goes and wins a national championship. And on top of everything else, he has all the swag in the world. I mean, I'm a big cigar guy. I love the victory cigars after the game. I love that he hands them out to the teammates. This kid knows who he is. He's comfortable in his own skin. He's unfazed by the moment, as we saw what happened in Arrowhead. And, you know, I think Matthew Stafford's a great story, and I'm right there with you. And I think that he's a guy that is much higher regarded inside the league by coaches and executives than by fans and media. So I'm excited to watch Matthew Stafford as well. But I just feel like we're walking into the beginning of what could be a truly special career for Joe Burrow. And I hope to see him rise to the occasion in the Super Bowl as he has all year. Well, he's a unicorn in the sense that he has the personality of a Hollywood superstar at the quarterback position. And for everything that Tom Brady has, he doesn't have that. He never had that. Patrick Mahomes makes you have fun watching the game. He's not really brash outward. He's kind of goes about his business. It's been a long time since we've seen like a quarterback straight out of central casting that you would want to lead your movie have that charisma, have that little thing that some people might not like. I mean, I grew up not appreciating personalities in sports, and it took me a long time to understand that that was a big part of the game. But he's making football fun, and he makes you feel something when he's under center, whether that be good, bad, or ugly. Oh, oh, don't get me wrong. I think Mahomes has that it factor in spades as well. I mean, you look at some of the throws Patrick Mahomes makes, and it's like, how the hell did he pull that off? You know, how did he make that throw? I think he might be the most athletically gifted quarterback that we've seen in decades. He's And he's a joy to watch. And I think he too is comfortable in his own skin. I think he too is the ideal face of a franchise for the Kansas City Chiefs. My point is, I think that Joe Burrow is a worthy adversary. And we might be watching Tom Brady versus Peyton Manning 2.0 in Burrow against Mahomes. It's just that when the game has been on the line late, both in the regular season in Cincinnati and then again in the championship game, Joe Burrow has made the plays to win the game for the Bengals. So I'm excited to see how that rivalry plays out for the next several decades. And I'm excited to see what Burrow's able to do in his first trip to the Super Bowl because, hey, if nothing else, Mahomes got to his first and led one of the all time fourth quarter comebacks against the 49ers to win Kansas City that ring. We'll see if Burrow has that in him against the Rams. My second thing I'm excited to see from the Rams is Odell Beckham Jr. The redemption tour. It wasn't so long ago. I can remember it. It was the golden age of blogs when he and the other New York Giants wide receivers went out into a boat before playing Green Bay. He did not perform well. It was his only playoff game. He lost it. He did not get back. 
there was disconnect, there was discomfort in New York, there was an ill-fated Cleveland experience that ended when his father started getting loud on social media, playing checkers, play, not playing chess apparently as he lands with a team that is in the Super Bowl. He's been awesome in the playoffs, in the NFC Championship game, nine receptions for 113. The game before that against Tampa Bay, six for 69, opening round Arizona, four for 54. He has one touchdown. He remains an amazing second option in that offense, and I don't think we would have predicted that or seen that coming, certainly not before the trade, but even after as we were kind of seeing we were kind of left wondering how much he had left in the tank, right? And he has risen his game to a really high level down the stretch. And certainly once the elimination round started, he's a very fascinating personality. That moment with Debo Samuel, where he went over and comforted him, he's marches to the beat of his own drum. He's taken a lot of slings and arrows in the media and by fans. And I think fairly, some of that has been warranted, by his actions, you might not like him. He's going to be polarizing, but on the field, he is playing like a much younger version of himself. And he's finally kind of like that key cog of a championship team. Maybe even if he's not at the center of it, it's a really cool thing for me to see how people age in sports and can still be effective when they find the right ecosystem, even if their own role looks slightly different than one that maybe we idealize is like the platonic version of him. Yeah, he's Robin now. He's Robin to Cooper Cup's Batman. And Cooper Cup is one of the more polished route runners in the NFL. He won the triple crown. So you know how gifted he is as a wide receiver. And, you know, I, I pre-pandemic, I was in the Giants locker room every day during my two years on that beat when the locker room access was a thing. And he might, Odell Beckham Jr. might be the most dynamic player that I've ever covered, the most dynamic personality that I've ever covered. And I've been in NFL locker rooms dating back to 2011. He's a special talent. And that boat trip that you mentioned, that's still a myth in New York. That, that still hangs over that fan base and some of the players that are, were there, like a Sterling Shepard. And I think that watching Odell Beckham Jr. blossom in that situation, in that offense, and let, let's be really crystal clear about this. Without Odell Beckham Jr., the Rams aren't in the Super Bowl. They don't get through this postseason run without Odell Beckham Jr. He's played at a really high level. It's nothing to take away from him saying that he's Robin to Cooper Cup's Batman when he was the Batman in Gotham through the first chapter of his career. And I think it's quite telling, Kyle, that the Giants basically said, we can't win with this guy. Baker Mayfield and the Browns effectively set it into a bullhorn. And here he is playing in his first Super Bowl. I'm really happy for Odell. I think it's a great redemption story. And I'll go next for the Bengals. I got one for you. Zach Taylor. And I don't think that people are talking enough about Zach Taylor and the story here, because not only is he one of the brightest up and coming offensive minds among the head coaching ranks in the NFL right now. He was on Sean McVay's staff for two years with the Los Angeles Rams. There's a lot that's made in the college ranks about former Nick Saban assistants and how they struggle against Nick Saban. Well, here's Zach Taylor with the opportunity to go up against his old boss, because when you think about his time with the Rams, he wasn't coaching the defense. He wasn't coaching special teams. He was working alongside Sean McVay, both as the assistant wide receivers coach and then ultimately as the quarterback's coach with Jared Goff for two years. This is a great story of mentor versus mentee. 
And you think back to just two years ago, it was the Bengals and Zach Taylor's staff that were in Mobile, Alabama, coaching the Senior Bowl, which is coached by two of the lowest ranking you know, teams in the league, two last place finishers, you know, your, your Detroit Lions are, are coaching the senior bowl in Mobile this week as we speak. And you think two years removed from that situation where you don't know where they're going to head. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, they get Joe Burrow. They start building around him. And here they are. They go from the senior bowl to the Super Bowl in two years. And I think that Zach Taylor, if he can win this game, it's a launching pad for the rest of his career. Well, it's certainly already been a launching pad because I can remember even about a month ago, I went to say his name and I called him uh, Zach Stacy. Uh, so he did not have the name recognition for uh, my lizard brain. But I think that this will be an opportunity for him. Too to many play. Roman numerals. You know, yeah, I just, there was too much stuff going on in there. Uh, but now I know it. Now I know it. And he's he's young, right? I mean, he's, he's not involved in the conversation between McVeigh and Shanahan because that's turned into such a wild and high stakes rivalry, but just like you said, where Burrow could be essentially the key cog in a, in a long-term rivalry with the chiefs. If these two teams meet again, next super bowl or whatever, like there's just more branches of the McVeigh tree to go against each other. And I think it's an interesting storyline each and every single time, because you might not think that there's like this proprietary knowledge that Sean McVay and anybody who's ever stood next to him have that make you a good football coach. But when you're going head to head, that's a real chess match because when you're working with someone who knows how you work, how you use your philosophies and more how you tinker it. Like both of these minds are, I think when the a big crop of youth in NFL coaching and then in other sports, they take ownership of their system in a way that I don't think that the old guard did. I think the old guard kind of established something and then they're like, okay, this is it. This is what I do. And I'm going to do this for the next 20 years. It's an always be improving, always be tinkering, always being experimenting situation. And then when you have someone on the other side, who's equally as committed, it'll be fun to see how they match up, how it works out on the field. I will say through the playoffs, I think that Taylor's done a better job in the management side, McVay had a disastrous game coaching from the sidelines against the Niners, but was able to withstand the bad challenges, the burning of timeouts, and it didn't burn him. The next thing to look for on the Rams, and it's weird that it's number three, but he does get forgotten, even though he's arguably the best player in the NFL is Aaron Donald. And I think that we approach defense and understanding defense in weird ways it's moved more toward the outside pass rusher in my way, like the lockdown corner. You're always able to see what they're doing. The edge rusher, you can see the way they get off the line. They're always getting sacks. When someone plays on the interior of the line, like Aaron Donald does, and yet has the speed to play outside. And in that NFC championship game, like we mentioned, Fox did a really good job of showing him calling his team over for a heated meeting on the sidelines. And then he went out and he dominated. So they quickly made him a main character in that story faster than it would have taken the public to realize that, no, this is the Aaron Donald game, six foot one, 284 pounds, just a freak athlete who dominates, who requires to be double teamed at all times. He's getting his moment in that matchup against the Bengals offensive line which yes, I know that there's two weeks, but there is no savior coming in. There is no luck coming in. Good luck with that nine sacks and winning. Maybe they do it again, but there's a chance that this looks a lot like 
the last Super Bowl did where the Buccaneers were just all over Patrick Mahomes and Mahomes, even though he had immense talent, was never able to get it going. I think that Donald has the chance to win this game almost single-handedly if he and that front four can get pressure without sending any type of exotic blitzes because then you're sitting back there. And I know that Burrow is good, but I think that he's going to be less good if he has to fit things into a tight window and he's getting rid of the ball as quickly as possible because he does do well when he can extend the play. He's not the best outside the pocket guy, but like you said, he's a playmaker kind of like in a Roethlisberger type way where it never looks pretty, but he's going to find the right guy. I think that the Rams and Donald especially have the ability to take that completely away from Cincinnati. This is where the chess match comes in, right? Because if you have to start getting rid of the ball quicker, you're not going to be able to send Jamar Chase on those nine routes down the field. You're not going to be able to – there without C.J. Uzoma, or at least that, that's the belief going into this game, his security blanket at tight end. What do you do to get Joe Mixon involved? What do you do to neutralize Aaron Donald? Because I agree with you. Aaron Donald is the premier player, the most gifted player in the NFL, not just defensive lineman, the best player, period, full stop. Then you have to deal with Von Miller, who is a guy capable at this stage of his career of putting up seven or eight sacks per year, who's going to be disruptive. I had Anthony Munoz on my podcast coming up this week, and just a little teaser for your audience, he compared Aaron Donald to somebody like Bruce Smith, who was obviously a Hall of Famer, obviously one of the premier edge rushers of his era and of all time, and you plant that in the middle of a defensive line? That's as disruptive as anything that a team can do to any quarterback. So I'm with you. I think that if you want to look for value in terms of betting who the MVP is going to be, Aaron Donald's got to be a guy that I'm going to be looking for his odds. But, you know, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction for my next reason that I'm so excited. I'm going to go back to the offensive side of the ball, and I'm going to go to Jamar Chase, who I kind of mentioned in passing last time. But, you know, I, I was really excited about Jamar Chase coming into this NFL draft, and I wrote a story on fansided.com leading up to the draft, talking to people who played with him at LSU, talking to executives, talking to his personal trainer. And the consensus from people way back then was, Jamar Chase is a guy with gold jacket Hall of Fame potential. He's that gifted, he's that athletically fluid, and he's that hard of a worker. And he went out this year, Kyle, and he proved it. This is a kid, rookie NFL season. I know he played at LSU. I know he played in the SEC against NFL caliber defenses in college. 81 catches, 1,455 yards, averaged 18 yards per catch, and caught 13 touchdowns as a rookie. And, you know, you think back even to the other players that were drafted in the first round, the other receivers, Jalen Waddell, nice year, looked like a rookie. Devonta Smith, kind of slow to come along. Justin Jefferson last year was kind of another outlier, had a great year, probably one of the top two or three receivers in the league right away. But, you know, in my lifetime watching football, and I'm sure you can echo this, Kyle, it seems like it takes three years for wide receivers to peak. If Jamar Chase is already this good, if he's already a guy that can catch 80 passes, 1,500 yards, and average 18 yards per reception, what is he going to be in the future? And, and for this game in particular, how do the Bengals weaponize him? Because you know part of that chess match is going to be, how do I get Jamar Chase away from Jalen Ramsey? How do I get him matched up against another cornerback? How do I move him around? How often do I put him in the backfield and run rocket screens to him or just get the ball in his hands in different ways? So I'm really excited to see not only Jamar Chase's impact on this game, but how Zach Taylor is able to utilize him against that Rams defense that you know is going to be flying to the football at all three levels. Yeah. And what you bring up is kind of segues into mine. First of all, Jamar Chase is so fantastic to watch. And I think what's so cool about him is 
he doesn't look like a physically imposing player. And there was just the story this week that when he wanted to play for Les Miles, Les Miles was like, you can't be a wide receiver. Uh, he, he, he whiffed on that one. It turned out okay. Just, yeah, he's, he's been fine. Les Miles, he's doing, he had that role at Kansas, whatever. But I mean, I think it's just what he's able to do. Like he kind of makes it look effortless. Like even on 50-50 balls, when you see that he doesn't have that big of a size advantage over the DB he's matched up with, he just has lasers. There's almost like this will uh, that Chase has. And I, I agree with you. They got to do some Debo Samuel type stuff to get him the ball because you cannot leave your best weapon underutilized, which segues into what I'm excited to see. And that's from Sean McVay, the genius, the boy genius, the boy wonder, the 36-year-old wonderkin, Galileo, Aristotle, Renaissance man, all that. His one trip to the Super Bowl was a disaster. And it was a public humiliation, scoring three points against the New England Patriots. The New England Patriots were toying with him. It was one of the more dominating defensive performances you'll ever see, even though it didn't feel like it wasn't full of like highlight real plays. It was just like this slow suffocation, like a boa constrictor getting around that offense and squeezing any type of life out of it. He said a long time to stew about that. And a long time to think about what he's going to do if he ever gets back there. Obviously, the move to bring Stafford in was a major part of it. But what is his offense going to look like? It's not going to be conservative. I'll bet you that much. He's going to be going down gun swinging. He's going to use all the bullets in the chamber. And I think that's going to make for an interesting game because I'm not expecting like one of these 17 to 16 slogs. A proud offensive mind really wants to showcase his masterpiece on the biggest night of football. And you think back to that game, you go back to the first name you mentioned in this conversation, Matthew Stafford. He's going to be the difference maker here, in my opinion, because you look back to that Super Bowl Rams-Patriots. If Jared Goff isn't late on the throw into the end zone, we might be talking about a totally different game here. Because what, what happened in that game was Tom Brady made a couple of throws to Rob Gronkowski in the fourth quarter, and that was that. It was a wrap. That was the only real offense we saw the entire game because the Patriots' defense was so dominant. McVay has a better quarterback now. And he's not going up against such a dominant, stifling defense that he had, uh, you know, across the sideline from him with Bill Belichick and the McCourty twins and all of the playmakers on New England's defense. So, yeah, I'm with you. That's going to be really fascinating to watch unfold. Uh, I'm going to go outside the box for my reason why I'm excited for the Bengals. And it's Cincinnati fans. You know, I'm 35 years old and they haven't been in a Super Bowl, I believe, in my lifetime. I think it's 36 years since that game against Joe Montana and the San Francisco 49ers. And this is a fan base that's starving for a champion. It's a fun fan base. And I love what McVay and the Bengals did after that wild card win over the Raiders going out to the, the different bars around the city and, you know, giving out game balls to the fans and to the fan base. And I think that, you know, being from Philadelphia and I covered the Eagles from 2011 through their Super Bowl win over the Patriots in 2017, I saw firsthand what that euphoria is like for a fan base to finally win a Super Bowl when there were like 1.2 million people at the parade and just the, the joy that the city felt for, for weeks and weeks at a time. I want that for Cincinnati. And there's nothing against LA. I mean, Los Angeles is my favorite city in the country. If I could live anywhere, it would be there, you know, whether it's Manhattan Beach, Venice Beach, any, any of those spots. I love it out there. I swear I'm a West Coast kid at heart. But something about delivering a championship to a prolific sports fan base, I think would be something special. I'd love to see the Bengals be able to do it. And doing it with, uh, 
quote unquote homegrown talent, someone who cares about the region, doing it kind of like through grassroots movement in the draft. Uh, it's all things that they did. That's in direct opposition to my final reason to be excited about what the Rams are bringing into that Super Bowl. And that's just going for it. We've been talking about the Rams as kind of the NFL's version of the Brooklyn Nets on our site this year. And it's a super team. It's as simple as that. Stafford is not, you know, he is not the A1 quarterback, but he is a superstar. At the deadline, Odell, Von Miller, all these moves to just go for it now, to go all in, to say, you know what? Maybe this will be detrimental for the long term. If we, and certainly if we fail, we're going to be second guessed, but we're going to go for it. And to this point, it's proven to be a worthy gamble. And I do think that they're going to win. So it will come out in the wash. But I think that it gives hope to teams. We focus so much on how teams are going to go through these long rebuild process and how there's only one way to do it. I think that what the Rams have shown this year is there is a way to kind of put your foot on the gas and speed up some of that if you're willing to take risks and you're willing to take opportunities. It made the trade deadline and the time that preceded that really fun. Maybe that catches on in the NFL where there's more in-season swapping because it's really fun to see how roster construction can change. And the Rams are an infinitely more exciting team with those big names on them. And then those big names have delivered as we've ticked through already in my list. So I think that, yes, there's the quaint, fun way that the Bengals have done it, the way that everybody wants to do it the right way. Then there's the way that the Rams did it, which, you know what, you still get a trophy if you go that route. Oh, no doubt about it. They were all in from the beginning of this year. And I love the aggressiveness. I love the fact that you realize, hey, I'm going to go for it right now. Forget what happens in two years. Forget what happens in four years. I'm going for it right now. And then, you know, getting to the Super Bowl, that, that's a huge accomplishment in its own right. Now they have to go and finish the job, but they have to finish the job against what might be the second most explosive collection of weapons in the NFL behind the Kansas City Chiefs. And that's my reason number five, because obviously my feelings about Joe Burrow are now pretty well documented both in the column and in our conversation. But it's not just Jamar Chase. It's not just Joe Burrow. They have Joe Mixon, who is a dominant, bruising, explosive running back that if it becomes a bit of a shootout, you can slow it down and you can control the game with Joe Mixon. If you decide that you want to go for it and Jamar Chase is covered with a safety shading him over the top, well, I have a guy like Tyler Boyd who might be the best slot receiver in the NFL and a great red zone threat. And if I want to stretch the field on the other side, I got T. Higgins. So just the collection of weapons, the Rams went out and yes, they drafted Cooper Cup, but they signed, you know, Odell Beckham Jr. The, the Bengals have built this collection of, of star players at the skill positions around their young quarterback. You know, I cover the Giants and I go back to the way that they took Saquon Barkley number two overall at a time when they had Eli Manning and they had Odell Beckham Jr. They had Evan Ingram, they had Sterling Shepard, a lot of weapons there. And I could justify taking a running back number two overall. And if, if your plan was, hey man, next year, we're going to drop a rookie quarterback in that. He's going to have Odell to throw to it. He's going to have Saquon. He's going to have Evan Ingram. He's going to have all these pieces. Well, then the Giants go ahead and they trade Odell Beckham Jr., which makes you kind of scratch your head. Why did they draft a running back in the first place? The Bengals, I think, did it right because they got all of these weapons. They got the quarterback, unfortunately, got hurt last year, but it put them in a position to get the game-changing weapon in Jamar Chase. So just the core and the nucleus and the explosive players, 
that's what I want to see and what they're able to do in the biggest game of their lives. Yeah, I think it'll be kind of a coming out party for Boyd, Higgins. And yes, I mean, people watch the playoffs, but I mean, Joe Public, who's tuning in for their one game a year, like you said, I think that they could be after this game, they could be walking away saying, wow, look at that wide array of talent they have. And if they don't know any better, they're going to say, well, this is the better playmaker. I mean, you could Higgins could have a better game than Cup. Anything is possible. Those are just 10 reasons we're excited for the Super Bowl. There's so many. I'll, I'm like I said, I'm totally honest about this. Some years I'm kind of like, oh, this guy again, uh, the storylines get stale, but I'm just perfectly at peace with whatever happens, even though I've been pulling for Stafford and will continue to do that. I think that we're going to have a really fun champion, no matter how it works out. And I do think it will be a good game. So we could have gone on forever, but we're both busy. We know that you cannot be late to your next appointment or there will be <laughs> Uh, that's Matt Lombardo. Yeah, yeah, kick me, kick me out the door. Okay, kick me on my way out, right? That's Matt Lombardo from the Matt Lombardo Show, the Stacking the Box podcast. You can read him on fansided.com. Thanks so much for the time and enjoy the game. You got it, Kyle. Thanks. Should be a great one. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.